my name is Tommy McRail. And I'm John Romano. And we will be discussing the importance of wind and water in Homer's The Iliad and Hesiod's Theogony. Homer, if he was a single person and not a collection of people, was a Greek poet born between the 12th and 8th centuries BC, and Hesiod was also a Greek poet alive in the latter half of the 8th centuries BC. And the reason we wanted to focus on the water and the wind is because I believe we have a unique relationship with these elements as we're both a part of the men's rowing team at Holy Cross. So we spend a great deal of time in the spring and the fall going out in the mornings for practice and battling these elements in boats. And the quality of our practice and the speed of our racing shells really depends on the water and wind conditions during the day. And because of this, I think we share a similarity to the ancient world because we are still very connected to water and the wind. I agree with you, John. I also think our experiences with these elements is, is fairly unique. Modern luxuries have made these elements of, of wind and water less significant in, in our daily lives, which is vastly different from the experience of those living in and around the ancient Mediterranean. They relied heavily on these elements for things such as food, trade, transportation, and the importance of these elements is in their culture is really conveyed through the myth of, of Iphigenia, where King Agamemnon is attempting to sail his fleet to Troy, but can't because of unfavorable winds as a result of angering the goddess Artemis. And in order to gain back her favor, he's instructed by Artemis to sacrifice his own daughter, which he then proceeds to do, and as a result, his fleet is able to sail to Troy. And while this story may communicate a lot of things about ancient Greek culture. Uh, most of those lie beyond the scope of, of our discussion. What is relevant for us is the fact that there is a king who is willing to sacrifice his own daughter for favorable winds. And we believe this really highlights the importance uh, of these elements in their culture. And Homer and Hesiod, you know, we believe both continue this theme in their own works. They both use water and wind to help convey their message. And, and we would like to explore um, the connotations of, of these elements in their stories and and how they use them to interact with their own plots and then compare and contrast this with our own experiences. Yeah, Tom, I agree. The myth of Iphigenia is a great example of portraying how important uh, certain natural elements like wind and water are to ancient life. Um, I think Hesiod does a fantastic job of highlighting how important water is to ancient life. And he does this really simply in his origin story, the Theogony, in just describing the order in which the immortals are created. Um, he starts with creating Earth and Earth creating the starry heaven, but out of Earth comes the sea, the undreaming sea and the, the mountains. And what's interesting is the way that he describes the creation of the sea on lines 125 to 131, he describes the undreaming sea as having a furious swell and also not coming from a union of love. And that, that last part about the union and love really makes me question, you know, where does the sea sit in the hierarchy of the gods? And I think it sits right up there with the starry heaven and earth. And I think that's just a way to uh, show reverence to the sea, um, to show how highly the ancient people valued the water and the ocean and the sea, just how it's important it was to their lives. And another way that Hesiod um, highlights the importance of the water in his uh, origin story is by using it as a, a symbol for rebirth and birth. And Hesiod does this just by explaining the multitude of gods that come from or around the sea. And he lists off uh, a multitude of, of rivers, nymphs, 
Um, some really key players in Greek mythology, like uh, the wise god Nereus and all of his offspring. But most importantly is Aphrodite actually comes from the sea after Zeus cuts off his father Cronus's genitals. The genitals fall into the water, create a foam, and the goddess actually emerges from that foam. And one thing that's really, really uh, interesting about Aphrodite's origin is since she comes from the sea, she plays a very important role in the story later on um, with the creation of Typhus that is sort of the pinnacle of the, of the origin story, and we'll talk about the importance of that later. But such a crucial part of Greek mythology revolves around the ocean, and I just think that says a lot about how much the ancient people value the water and the sea in their regular lives. John, I was interested there in your analysis of the multiple traits that water possesses in, in mythogeny. It seems to suggest that, you know, there's a dichotomy associated with water there, where on one hand, you have this idea of rebirth and, and purification, and on the other, it seems to represent something much darker, you know, the sense of violence and carnage. Uh, I find this interesting because I also see this in the Iliad. Um, some passages describe the water as very calm and soothing, you know, with with a lot of symbolism for, for rejuvenation. Um, you often see this as, as Homer describes soldiers bathing in the sea after combat. Uh, Book 10, lines 575 through 580 is a good example of this. They themselves, wading into the sea, washed away the copious sweat from their shins and neck and thighs. And when the sea swell had washed the dense sweat from their skins and their very spirits were re refreshed. Um, and here, you know, it's, it's very clear. You can see this water, you know, really symbolizing the rebirth and purification after, after a long day of battle. Uh, really kind of similar to your story about Aphrodite. Um, and then on the other hand, we also encounter water as a very destructive force. Um, this can be seen uh, when the Greek soldier Diomedes is rampaging through the Trojan ranks uh, in Book 5, lines 84 through 90. So they toiled through the mighty combat and you would not have known with which side the son of Tydeus stood, whether he fought in the company with the Trojans or Achaeans, for he surged across the plain like a river swollen with winter flood, that racing swiftly dashes its embankments and the dam's fence close around it cannot restrain it. And, and here, the, the violence of Diomedes is, is compared to that of a flood. Um, and it kind of reminds me, John, of, of the passage that you described as the undraining sea and in the large swells, and I'm wondering if you see any similarities there. Oh, I definitely see similarities. I think that this like dichotomy of the element of water and how it can be both rejuvenating but violent at the same time is somewhat a reflection of just how the ancient people saw the water and how Homer and Hesiod saw the water as just unpredictable. Like They didn't understand what was going on. Um, and I'm just thinking to our own experience with rowing, I mean, there are days where, I, like, we go out there, and I literally think, like, is Lake Quinsigamon mad at me? Like, what did I do to, to warrant these massive waves? And then some days where it's perfectly flat water, like, oh, you know, whatever is making the water flat, like, it's happy with me. And I think that's the same thing with, with these two works. It's just they're just conveying how they interpreted the sea, and they just don't know. They're unpredictable. Yeah, it's really dynamic. Their, their interpretations of it, you know, are very dynamic. It's really, you kind of see two, two very different connotations there which i find very interesting and speaking of kind of like a dual role of elements hesiod also brings in the element of wind in his story and kind of the pinnacle of the origin story where aphrodite brings together tartarus and earth and they create this storm giant uh typhus and he's the youngest son of earth 
and this creature is terrifying. I'll just read you a description um, by Hesiod. It's on lines 823 to 829. He describes him as his arms are employed in feats of strength, and the legs of the powerful god are tireless. Out of his shoulders came a hundred fearsome snake heads with black tongues flickering, and the eyes in, this, in his strange heads flashed fire under his brows. And there were voices in all his fearsome heads, giving out every kind of indescribable sound. And when I read that, I was just thinking, what is Typhus embodying? I mean, so many of the immortals embody some sort of a, some aspect of the natural world. And we only find out later after Zeus defeats Typhus, as Typhus threatens the reign of Zeus and the reign of the traditional Greek gods like Aphrodite, um, that Typhus represents a sort of rogue wind. And in the same sense that there is a dichotomy of water, there's also a dichotomy of wind because Hesiod describes that the westerly, northerly, and southerly winds are actually good for humanity and the immortals. But this rogue wind that emerges from Typhus, that causes problems for people. And he explains this um, on lines 868 to 871. He describes... Um, the emergence of the wind in stating that from typhus are the strong winds that blow wet, except for the southerly, the northerly, and the clearing westerly. These are from the gods by birth and a great blessing to mortals. But the other winds blow haphazard on the sea, falling upon the misty waves, a great bane to the mortals. They rage with evil gusts, they blow different at different times, scattering ships and drowning sailors. There is no help against disaster for men who meet them at sea. And again, what's interesting is just that there are good winds and there are bad winds. There are, ba there are winds that create a lot of problems for people, and there are winds that are really good for both gods and mortals. John, I found it funny how you, you talked about there are three winds that... that uh Hesiod describes as, as being good winds and, and one wind as, as being bad. And I think I can speak for both of us in saying that as rowers, there is, there is three winds that we don't mind and one wind that we really don't like. We, we don't mind a tailwind that usually makes the race go a little bit faster. We don't mind crosswinds because they don't really affect us that much if it's not strong. But we really, really don't like the headwinds. And I guess that kind of relates to that experience of the winds that Typhus creates. Yeah, and as a, a final wrap-up, I think we both agree that both of these authors use the wind and the water and other natural elements to convey their message um, in their stories. Yeah, I would say that modern life has made it you know, a little bit more difficult to really kind of understand those connotations. And then, but you know, I think through some of our experiences that, that we've had, you know, we've, in a way, been able to kind of uh, you know, expose ourselves to the elements in the ways that, that people in the ancient Mediterranean have. And I think that that's given us, you know, maybe a little bit more insight and a little bit more sympathy for some of the experiences that they have had. And I guess a little bit, you know, even further, it's, it's you know, helped to shape our understanding of, of the text a little bit more. Oh, I totally agree. But, Tom, it looks like we're out of time. But thank you very much for listening to our podcast. Thank you very much.